Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're talking about two countries where democracy is doing really interesting things. Ireland and our old friend Italy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. We're going to come on to Italy in a bit, and we've got Lucia Rubinelli here, who knows a lot about Italy, as well as about political philosophy, Chris Bickerton, who knows about European politics generally which is good because we're also talking about Ireland and I'm delighted to say we've got Neve Gallagher here who is a historian of modern Ireland and we're going to start by talking about Sinn Féin some history as well as some of the present context that obviously is the headline story of the Irish election Sinn Féin so I'm going to put this in quote marks one in the sense that Sinn Féin got more votes than anyone else, did not get more seats, partly because Sinn Féin didn't believe it was going to win, and so didn't put up nearly as many candidates as its rival parties. My question to start with, it seems like the big question here. In the 1997 Irish general election, Sinn Féin got 2% of the vote the year before the Good Friday Agreement. Sinn Féin is now on roughly 25% of the vote. Did the party change? Or did the Irish electorate change? I'm sure it's a bit of both, but where would you put the balance? Is, is it that Sinn Féin is a very different kind of party, or is it that Irish voters are looking at politics very differently? Hmm. Why did Sinn Féin win? There are lots of different reasons. As you say, it won 24.5% of first preference votes, and the decision hasn't yet been made because we're counting second and third and fourth and so on, preference votes as well. So they get an outcome in the near enough future, we hope. The party is very different to how it was in 1997. The context is very different in 1997. We have to remember that the peace talks had been ongoing for a handful of years. The troubles in Northern Ireland wasn't yet over. And Sinn Féin had not completely detached itself away from the military wing, which was the IRA, which had affiliations to the party. The IRA had not yet decommissioned. So the politics of Northern Ireland was very present, was very much there. The Republic itself was experiencing a very different context as well. The Republic had been, I think for the first time in its life, experienced some wealth. This was the Celtic Tiger, the economic revolution that the country experienced from the mid-90s until the early 2000s. So the context is very different. Sinn Féin was very different. So its manifesto in 1997 spoke largely about the peace process, but also there were similarities. So the party does deserve some credit in this as well. The context was different, but the party also is important too. I think we know from this election, and we've seen it in lots of elections in Europe and in the United States, that generational divides really make a difference. And all of the evidence coming out of Ireland is that Sinn Féin's vote skews young. And by young here, we don't just mean people under the age of 30. This is people under the age of really 45. And the issues that are driving it are the ones that we're familiar with in the UK and elsewhere, cost of living, 
rent and so on. Is Sinn Féin's success partly a function of the fact that the people who are voting for it now don't remember 1997? That's really important. Yes, I think that's a key thing. This is one of the mistakes, I might say, that the main parties made, where they linked Sinn Féin to its its past, the past in the 70s and the 80s, linking it to the IRA and, and the, the conflict in Northern Ireland. The generation today doesn't remember the troubles, right? I think I've got some statistics here. Almost 32% of the electorate from who are aged 18 to 24 voted for Sinn Féin, so that's quite a lot, whereas fewer than 12% over the age of 65 voted for the party. So you do see a youth playing a real factor here. When you quote those figures, what it reminds me of is British politics and the huge generational gap. Those numbers are, I mean, it's a very different system, more parties to choose from, but those numbers are comparable to the UK general election, the huge vote for Corbyn among younger voters, drops off to next to nothing once you get to the over 65s. And Sinn Féin and Corbyn's Labour have various things in common, including historic connections, but also some policy connections too. When I look at the Irish election result, one of the things that it reminds me of is that electoral systems make a huge difference. So this is a victory on roughly 25% of the vote. Corbyn's Labour in 2017 was on 40% of the vote. You can get so far with that demographic, with that constituency, but under this electoral system, you can win with it. Well, I mean, you can't form a government, we don't think yet. Sure, yeah. But you can, you can come yes. first. So Sinn Féin have definitely won the popular vote. No questions asked. They've they've done that by twenty four and a half percent, and then the following figures I think for Fine Fáil were around twenty two percent, and slightly less for Fine Gael, if I remember correctly. I mean, in some ways, this is a really interesting le- election because for the first time, it seems to me, in Irish politics, Sinn Féin really stood on a leftist platform and have won. Essentially, they've won the popular vote on that platform. The other two parties. It's really, I hope they don't mind me saying, but it's really hard sometimes to draw a distinction between them. Trying to explain the differences between them to an electorate who's not familiar with Irish politics can be quite tricky. So these are two parties that are really centre-right parties, not a million miles away from each other, who collectively have won 43, 44% of the vote. So it's a slightly different situation to Britain, really, insofar as two parties are very similar. But it does, Chris, it does fit that pattern that we've seen around Europe of the two centrist parties, whether they're centre-left, centre-right, or both sort of centre-right-ish. Over a generation, seeing the vote share decline from a preponderance to something considerably less than 50%. So now in the Irish case, the two main parties between them are on 43 44%. A generation ago, it would have been like Labour and the Tories in this country. But they're not, it's not obvious that those parties are analogous to other parties in Europe. I think without them having to be analogous, because I think, as we've said, in some ways their origins are you know, pretty historically specific. But there is a sense, I think, in which they formed over time a sort of cartel, if you like, or a sort of a method of governing where changing of parties wasn't always meaning significantly changing of policies. And so a sense of this being a sort of a break with the cartel, I think, is important. Vote share can decline over time, but that doesn't mean that actually the parties change very much. And in this instance, I think there's a fair amount of, you know, supporting a government that was a minority government, but was given support by the other side. And that can go on for quite a long time. And then eventually, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure why it was this particular election when this happened, that arrangement falls apart. And then the balance starts to shift on this challenger party 
that may, I mean, I don't know whether Sinn Féin are going to be able to get these independents together in a way that will allow them to form a government. But it seems to be interesting that in, in any case, there are, I think, around something like 50 independents that they could possibly have some alliance with, which itself is symptomatic of the decline of these two main parties, that they have all the representatives. Plus, you've got the rise of the Greens as well, a story that we're seeing around Europe. This was a very, very good election for the Greens. It's, it's independence plus Sinn Féin plus Greens still doesn't get you to a government. Still doesn't get you to a government. But it gets you close. Gets you close, yeah. I think the more realistic option at the moment is for one of the other parties to have some some sort of coalition with Sinn Féin. And that's not going to be Fine because they ruled out that possibility. Fianna Fáil said initially that they wouldn't, but haven't reiterated that since Saturday. So chances are they might find themselves in government. And they will be thinking about the future as well. If another election needs to happen because no government can be formed, it's very possible Sinn Féin will run many more candidates and win by a majority in the next election. So Fianna Fáil will be thinking about that option as well. and wondering, is it in their strategic interests to form a coalition now or to then play a very risky game for another election? So Fianna Fáil is in some ways the party that's hardest to find an analogy for anywhere else. So I was listening to the David McWilliams podcast last week, which I recommend, and they had an interesting discussion about this, and it's relevant for what we're going to go and talk about, which is if you're trying to look for a comparison for Fianna Fáil around Europe, the only one they could come up with was Andriotti's Christian Democrats in Italy, a party that in the end was destroyed by corruption and economic failure. Fianna Fáil were nearly destroyed by the crash. Presumably that was a near-death experience for that party. Absolutely, yeah. But survived it. Even then, it's kind of odd that that's, it, it's hard to place that because I think of that form of Italian politics as being very much a 20th century thing. And yet here is this party that had a near-death experience and it may still be about to form the next government. Yeah. And the David McWilliams podcast, they also said this party has to be recognised as one of the most successful political parties anywhere in the world in its ability to keep going and winning. This is this is partly because the Irish really like their history and uh, history is very important to these political parties. So it's much more than just just a party of choice who you vote for because of policies. There are important historic connections back to the Civil War in 1922-23. And these two parties, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, essentially dominate and dominated the political landscape for the entire 20th century. So voting for them was very much about that connection to the past, the side you were on, the side your family might have been on. And that really dictated and dominated a lot of how people voted for these parties throughout the 20th century. So this is why this is so new. The fact that both of the main parties, the duopoly, so to speak, haven't done so well and they've been trumped by a third candidate who also has very interesting historical connections to um, what's now the Republic of Ireland. I mean, I was interested, is it the case then that in terms of Irish party politics, you've had a political system that for a long time has been rooted in history and tradition. There's a sort of a deep, if you like, sort of sociology of the party system. And if it's similar to what we've seen in many other European countries, that over time has simply just crumbled away. And you get this kind of free-floating party system that oversees a much more deeply individualistic society where people will vote, you know, how they want to vote on the day. But you get a lot of volatility, not a lot of partisanship. I mean, is that the, the change that's taking place within Irish party politics, is that people begin to 
be much more open in who they're going to vote for and uh, feel like they can just choose between them rather than having some sort of predetermined choice based on their own history. Mm, Hard to say. I mean, if I were to link it to a factor, I'd probably link it to the financial crash in 2008. And of course, Ireland really suffered with the financial crash. There was a policy of austerity brought in by the the government at the time, which was really severe. Over 20 billion euros in spending was cut. Um, Maybe 12 billion euros in taxes was taken from the electorate. So people really were hurt by the financial crash within Ireland. And Fianna Fáil suffered from that. And people are still suffering. There's a tremendous amount of housing insecurity. Homelessness is is fairly high, 10,000 people within, within the Republic of Ireland. That's quite a lot. So the legacies of that, I think, are partly why Sinn Féin won the popular vote in this particular election. Is this one of those elections where the politicians themselves didn't see it coming? I mean, it looks like that. The mere fact that Sinn Féin didn't put up enough candidates to reap the full benefit of their success. And Sinn Féin have not been doing particularly well in recent local elections in Ireland. Fianna Fáil seemed to think that enough water was under the bridge that they might be forgiven. And it looks like, in many ways, they're still not being forgiven. Fianna Gael, the incumbent government, seemed to believe that a strong economy and having played a shrewd game on Brexit would give them the benefit of the doubt with the electorate. It looks like, in their different ways, they all misjudged what was going on. They did, yes. In this way, um, maybe it is a victory for the people. They, they outsmarted. It's actual democracy. Yeah, they, <laughs> who would have thought in Ireland of all places? Um, You're they, allowed to say that. <laughs> they they outfox the politicians. No, it is, it's really interesting. And I'm sure Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are thinking about what did they do wrong? What could they have done better? And I think part of it was not differentiating enough from each other. Fine Gael hoped that the successes Leo Varadkar had here in the UK with the Brexit negotiations and with bringing Ireland's economy, I mean, getting it out of the terrible state it was in, it deserves a lot of credit. And I think he felt and the party felt that that was enough to secure votes, but clearly it wasn't. And Fianna Fáil didn't do enough of a good job in differentiating itself from Fine Gael. And both of them trying to blacklist Sinn Féin in a way, which was an argument that did work in earlier elections, didn't fly in this one. I'm just wondering if the Irish economy has emerged from the crisis and has emerged strong from the crisis. Why then do you have this you know, large number of, as we've said, younger voters feeling as if they're not getting, it's not working for them? I mean, is this an election driven by the, you know, the economic dynamics but that would then suggest that they're not. So I'm just trying to understand what are the electoral sort of fallout of the post-crisis boom, I suppose, or the growth coming out of the crisis? Yeah, there, there does seem to be a divergence between the national figures that are cited, you know, GDP growth and, and usual national indicators, and the individual experience with people, particularly in, in Dublin, being priced out of rent, dire shortages in housing supply, people commuting longer and longer to work. So even though the figures suggest Ireland's doing better, and of course it's got many more corporations within Dublin who are helping to influence that figure, a large section of society don't feel like they've actually improved. So there's this divergence, I think, between national economic trends and between the individual experience. And it feels like one of those classic elections, it was a story that was told during Brexit, that people would say, don't quote GDP figures at me, that's your GDP, it's not my GDP. And we are learning more and more that these amalgamated figures do not capture people's experiences and the generation divide seems to be 
where that really comes home to roost. Exactly. And you, this seems like one of those elections. I mean, it's still striking to me that when you compare it to, say, the Labour Party here, Sinn Féin and Corbyn's Labour are pretty similar, and some of the controversies are similar. So Sinn Féin were quite keen on the Maduro regime in Venezuela, <laughs> and that did have some traction in Irish politics. I mean, they're, they're vulnerable potentially on similar grounds. So even if you forget the past historic links to regimes that don't look so great now is a problem for them. And yet, electoral systems matter so much. So a first-past-the-post two-party system where you try and corral that kind of politics into one of the two mainstream parties will take you so far. It nearly got Corbyn into Downing Street, but it didn't quite, and then it fell away. Here we're looking at something else, which is that kind of politics going in potentially into coalition with one of the mainstream parties. And indeed, possibly in the end, becoming the dominant partner in one of those coalitions. There is a future here for, I'm going to call it Corbynism. (laughs) It's obviously something very different too, but it has some connection with Corbynism, which looks completely different from what it looks like being the fate of Corbynism in this country. And it's the electoral system that's delivered that. Uh I mean, if, if I'm to distill it, um, why have the politics of the left won in Ireland? Well, I mean, in some ways, this is this is interesting in Europe. Finally, Ireland, after 100 and odd years and more, has seemed to develop what looks like a left and a right for the first time. And that's quite interesting because other countries might be shying away from that model, whereas finally there seems to be an election on that model. There's a slightly sort of paradoxical quality to it, which is the what allows the left and the right to emerge within Irish party politics is the dissipation of these traditional cleavages that propped up its traditional two-party system. So you have a kind of reorientation where people don't longer feel so loyal to one of those two main parties and are freer to vote, for instance, for Sinn Féin because of the receding of this big sort of historical baggage that was really the origins of the party system itself. And in that vacuum, I suppose, you get the emergence of then this left-right dynamic. I suppose the question is how enduring is left-right politics going to be in Ireland? Maybe it'll endure beyond this election or maybe what's driving this kind of what's going on at the moment is not. I mean left-right was itself a real division of society. Yeah that was my feeling about it which is volatile left-right politics doesn't feel to me like left-right politics. I mean it's contingent and skillful politicians can certainly exploit an appetite for something which we would call much more left. But I think of left-right as being an enduring division and it's not clear to me that this one is. No, no, absolutely. I mean, we can't, it's been a week, not even, and uh, we can't We can't make a, a decision based on the future. We can't predict this really. But I think you raise an important point there. We have to give credit to Sinn Féin itself for its creativity in this election, but also it has been a party that has stood for a long time on really the politics of the left as well, on this idea of social democracy, on the idea of looking after the people who've been squeezed out. And they've a long history of this. So in some ways, they've just been working hard at this and it's finally come to fruition as well for them. It's not that sudden. One historical question then I wanted to ask you briefly about Brexit. Why was the crash itself not the moment for Sinn Féin? I mean, it, it, a party that has been standing for that for a while, was the history too recent at that point? Because potentially at least, and a lot of people thought this, that the crash would open up a door for this politics of the left. And what we're discovering in lots of places is that, well, no, it took about 10 years for that opportunity to arise. Do you have a sense in the Irish case why 10 years ago wasn't Sinn Féin's moment and it is Sinn Féin's moment now? 
Um, not hugely. I mean, the politics, of course, and context was very different. Devolution in Northern Ireland had only been restored the previous year, 2007. The IRA had only decommissioned in 2005, finally laying down its its weapons. Gerry Adams was still the party's leader. Gerry Adams is still the party's leader. And this is an important point as well. Adams retired in 2018. And for many people, he represented a politics of the past. He had a Northern Irish accent. He was a very tangible connection to to the Troubles. Marie Lou MacDonald is very different, the current Sinn Féin leader. Trinity College educated, uh, studied English literature, mother of two, not associated with that politics of conflict. So she's very different. And Sinn Féin offered something new. And I think it's very important to say that for a lot of electors, it wasn't just the policies that they had, mainly around housing and around healthcare, but also that they represented change. And a lot of people commented that they wanted change. And that has to be taken into consideration too. So briefly, Brexit. So again, it's one of those elections that seen from the outside. There was a feeling that um, Leo Varadkar was a popular, successful leader who'd kind of outfoxed the British government. It was a checkered dance, that one. And in the end, did he get the better of Johnson? Did Johnson get the better of him? But he seemed to have a good Brexit, Definitely. seen from the outside. And he was presiding over a relatively strong economy, though not that equitably distributed. And they did really badly. Is it because Brexit, in the end, didn't matter? Is it because actually... And this was a view that some people took of Boris Johnson, that if he'd sorted Brexit, he would have found it much harder to win an election. It was only because he called an election to get Brexit sorted that he won. So Varadkar, in a way, sorted Brexit, which meant people could concentrate on other things, and Brexit fell away as an issue. Is that what happened? Yeah, uh, very surprisingly, Brexit was just not an issue in this campaign. So in the exit polls that were done, I think fewer than 1% of people cited Brexit as an issue, why they voted the way that they did, which is sort of mind boggling, really, because Brexit will really affect Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, given the percentage of trade that goes to Europe, most of which is to Britain. But it wasn't an issue. And I suppose for many people, they thought, why worry about Brexit when I can't pay my mortgage? I can't get a mortgage. I can't pay my car insurance. I can't access health care. So these are the issues that seem to be much more salient than Brexit, which still seems a bit like the sort of ephemeral quality that hasn't really, hasn't really happened yet. So it hasn't been felt. Because it's hard to believe if the election had been six months ago, more than 1% of people would have been. Brexit uncertainty was driving a lot of politics in Ireland and in this country. And it's not like we have Brexit certainty now, but Brexit is now a fact rather than a hypothesis. And it is odd, it's true in this country too, the extent to which that has drained some of the... You can't drain the air out of something, but, you know, it's let the air out of it. And it's happened in Ireland as well. And yet nothing's settled. It's bizarre. It is bizarre. I also think we're uh, we're so Brexit-focused here in the UK that it perhaps wasn't as big an issue in Irish politics as we might like to think it was because of course it's really serious but other issues did seem to be more important a lot of the time. So last question if Sinn Féin are part of a government what difference does that make to the Brexit negotiations and what's the relationship between Sinn Féin in the Republic of Ireland and Sinn Féin as one of the two partners in the Stormont executive? Yes. Are those political entities joined at the hip? 
or in some other way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Sinn Féin has always been an All-Ireland party, so there's no difference in that respect. Even in the recent elections here, the 12th of December, UK general elections, the leaders debate in Northern Ireland, where the party leaders come on and they're quizzed and, and interviewed, Mary Lou MacDonald appeared on behalf of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. Michelle O'Neill, who's the deputy leader, who actually is now the deputy first minister, she did not appear because it was a leader's debate. So Mary Lou appeared, even though she's not standing in a Northern Ireland constituency. So that itself shows that that's how the party views the world. That's how it views the island of Ireland. And that's been an important policy Sinn Féin has always held and has remained very committed to. If we think about the implications of that then for the relations between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland post-election and also in the context of Brexit, is it the case that then Sinn Féin as this you know, all-island party will make a big part of its efforts, if it was to form a government or whatever role it plays in government, to push for some part of its commitment to either unification or to having a a border pole? What are the sort of ripple effects likely to be? Because it's almost, there's an irony, I think, which is at the moment where Sinn Féin gets closest to power in the Republic, its stance on unification and or or the issues related to that play no role in the reason why people voted for them. It's all about the bread and butter economic issues, not about the big sort of national questions. Yeah, absolutely. Irish unification was not an issue in this election and Sinn Féin in this election did not make it an issue either. However, it's always been on their agenda to have a border poll. So a border poll would need to be had, first of all, in Northern Ireland on the consent principle before it can be had in um, in the South. And it wasn't made an issue of this in this election, but Sinn Féin still very much believe that that will be something that will happen. And in fact, Mary Lou Macdonald has already said she hopes to have this within the next five years, a border poll. So I think they'll be working hard at their messaging and are trying to convince groups, primarily unionists, that this is something that should happen and that people shouldn't be scared about. But it is going to raise a spectre of many ghosts and people will be spooked. One of the things I've been impressed by Mary Lou MacDonald is the fact that people call her Mary Lou and don't feel the need to say her because normally like with Mayor Pete it's because the politician has an unpronounceable surname but she has a completely pronounceable surname and yet I've noticed even in the press coverage she's become Mary Lou mm. that should have been a sign for people who didn't see this coming when you get to be on first name terms with the electorate you're doing pretty well absolutely Jerry yeah. Adams wasn't known in this country as no. Jerry no, true, true. No, I'm definitely, definitely not. Yes, yeah, very familiar, right? This is where personality play, plays a key role too. And um, she did really stand out in the TV debates as well. It was, oh, Mary Lou's done really well. But, you know, the other two, Micheál Martin hasn't done so well, or Leo Rodker. You're right, they used both of the names for the others, but she was always Mary Lou. Although, to put a down on it, it's a bit like Nick Clegg when he broke through. It was, I agree with Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't last. <laughs> Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. We might come back to Ireland in the next bit of the conversation, but we're going to do one of those screeching segues 
from Sinn Féin to the sardines. I didn't know how to do this because they're not really, apart from the fact they begin with the same letter. <laughs> I don't think we can call this episode Sinn Féin slash sardines. It's, I don't think either side of that equation would be happy with that. <laughs> so before the drama in Ireland, we'd also been planning to talk about Italy where there's quite a lot of drama going on. But what connects these two stories of our contemporary democracy is not just the volatility. And Ireland... I'm not saying Ireland is a sort of lagging story in this respect, but the surprise came, relatively speaking, from nowhere. People hadn't been thinking of Ireland as a place where these dramas were being played out, whereas Italy, as often seemed to be the kind of canary in the coal mine, it's it's a leader when it comes to political volatility. Something uh, to be proud of, yeah. So n- new parties in Italy is part of the story, and we'll come on to Five Star in a minute. Also new movements. So the Irish story is a very old party, suddenly breaking through, finally, after many, many decades. The Italian story recently has been of the rise and fall, the remarkable rapid rise and fall of new parties and new movements. So five-star sardines, five-star have fallen. I mean, I think they're done, right? Well, I mean... Nothing is ever completely done in Italian politics, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> really? No, I wouldn't say. I mean, Berlusconi was supposed to be done, and he has, he's still around. Not as powerful as he used to be, but no, I don't think they are completely done. Certainly, they've lost a lot of uh, vote share, no doubt about that, and a lot of credibility. And uh, But no, I, I, I do not think they are done. I think they still stand a chance. Because one reason they might be done, you know this better than me, is that they're not a party. So, okay, Berlusconi and others, they create their own movements and so on, but they have a basic political infrastructure behind them, including some pretty experienced operators, some ruthless operators, people who know Italian politics inside out. And political parties are quite hard to kill or movements that come out of political parties. Whereas Five Star, it never really professionalised, I think it's fair to say. It, It stayed true to its principles, which was it would crowdsource some of its policies, and in fact, it would crowdsource some of its politicians. So when it goes wrong for a movement like Five Star, is there anything left? In some ways, in democratic politics, it's surprising how hard it is to kill off established political parties. But I also think the counter to that is the extraordinary weakness of new movements when they experience government, screw it up. I think they're done. I think done is quite a strong... uh Whatever they represent, whatever function they play in Italian politics, that remains beyond the ups and downs of the Five Star Movement. They represented an experiment in political organisation, which was really to try and channel political organisation online and use entirely the web as an organisational device, but also as a device for controlling what the uh, political movement does, the kinds of policies that it has... There was this you know, grand experiment in the possibility of digital politics. So this was the kind of, you know, the project of, of Casaleggio. On the one hand, that makes it easier to all fall apart, but it also makes it easier in some way to just take on a different form. The sunk costs, if you like, are relatively low. But, you know, they could have tried this and it could have gone nowhere. What made it really work, I think, was this upswell in discontent about the established parties, a sense in which the political system and its representatives were deeply corrupt. All of those feelings were channeled through the Five Star Movement into some sort of sense of optimism about how to do politics differently. And that may, to some extent, have run its course, I think, which is that 
you know, if you were pretty optimistic about what the five star could do, you then found yourself repeatedly disappointed by the decisions it made. You found yourself disappointed by its willingness to ally itself to the Lega, I think, for a start, which made a lot of people disaffected who just were not ideologically close to the Lega. And then going into government with the, the kind of old sort of enemy, the PD, I think was really a final straw for many people. Exactly. So I, I think that in a way, the fact that they are not a traditional party, that they are a movement, is what makes them both stronger and weaker. So it makes them weaker for all the reasons that we just discussed, right? They don't have an infrastructure, they don't have a base on the territory. The few experiments that they had in local politics went quite badly, especially they got muddled into trying to manage Rome, and that destroys just everyone. Is, is that like, don't invade Russia? <laughs> right, exactly. Don't, don't yes. run Rome. Don't Are those run the two Rome. iron don't, laws don't, of politics? Yes. Uh, okay. yeah. It's <laughs> worth remembering that. Yes, so that was a big mistake. I mean, a big mistake, and then they had their own mistakes. But just Rome, it's probing for everyone. But then their strength is precisely what Chris was saying, meaning they are not a party. And we would be deluded if we thought that parties are back in favour in Italian politics. They are not. Certainly Salvini has refreshed the working machine of the League, and that's good. I mean, that, that's good for the League, in the sense the party has gained traction again. But it is not true that parties are, are um, back in the business as the main actors of Italian politics. And indeed, in that sense, I think it will be interesting to see what the Sardines end up doing. So that was going to be my question, because they're almost like the extreme version of this. A bunch of people who share a flat, pissed off with politics, good name, good brand, gather in squares, gaining traction, large crowds turning out. It's a protest movement. Then there's a thought, could we turn ourselves into something more like, a, if not a party, at least an organisation that could stand for election? The coverage in the UK press is they're already falling out with each other because they don't actually agree what they stand for and so on. And yet, no question over the last six months made a huge difference to Italian politics. It's taken some of the edge off the league's successes. Indeed, Salvini's he was meant to have his great triumph a couple of weeks ago. Did the Sardines make a difference to that? Give us a bit of background to that. Yes, so the Sardines are this movement that started off as a flash mob in a square in Bologna that was supposed to be a counter-manifestation to one of Salvini's electoral rallies. Um, And it's countering also his kind of social media, being on the beach, having people kiss him kind of thing. Exactly, so the idea is to overflood the media with different type of images and discourses. So yes, that's how it started then it is true that they managed to mobilize an incredible amount of people. And that was a surprise too, in a sense, nobody, not, not even themselves, nobody saw, saw this coming. And now... Y- young people well, primarily? Young, no, not necessarily. It's, well, it's many young people and the, the four flatmates, who are, ex-flatmates who organized it are all around 30. Are they ex-flatmates because they can't bear to live with each other? No, no, because they used to live together when they were at uni. But um, it's also many people in the public sector. So, for example, teachers like state employees, the original base of the left-wing party, right, of the PD. So they they really managed to mobilize that type of electorate. And now people tend to think that the Sardines explain 3% of the vote that went to the PD in the last regional elections in Emilia-Romagna. So that's quite something, right? 3% of the vote is a lot. And that gave them a lot of visibility and power. Just yesterday, they went to talk to the prime minister, to Conte, to propose a Erasmus exchange program between North and South of Italy, which is quite a bizarre... If this is your flagship policy yeah. suggestion, sounds pretty weird. But the reason why I brought it up is because I think this is telling of 
who they are and what they, they are after. In the sense that there are similarities with the Five Star Movement, right? The Five Star Movement started as a movement that filled theaters in order to showcase opposition to Berlusconi. So it was against one person. And the Sardines are the same in that sense. They are filling up squares to manifest their disapproval of Salvini and his type of politics. Then they realize that there is this similarity at birth, if you want. And now they are trying to they are trying to think hard about how to distinguish themselves. But again, this is a very interesting move because they are saying we're not party politics, so we don't talk to parties. Well, we do talk to parties, but we do not identify with any party. Yet we're not a movement because a movement would be the five-star movement. So we are a phenomenon. Mm. So now <laughs> maybe that's where Italian <laughs> politics is going. That's where phenomena, but... Um, phenomena. I think there's, there's a big difference with the five star, which is there's no Beppe Grillo. There's no equivalent. There's no charismatic individual who channels all the different sort of ideas and thoughts and feelings of, of the supporters into this persona. And the five star movement was, I think, partly successful because it cut out all of this faff of political parties, the kind of the bureaucratic layers of the party. And you just had supporters you know, who would get together, who would meet. They would then issue demands to sort of five-star representatives. And it all got lost a little bit in this internal sort of digital machinery. But then you had the face of Grillo and the personality of Grillo. So it was a very different movement with a charismatic leader. In the case of the Sardines, I'm not sure whether the right sort of comparison is maybe something like the Gilets Jaunes in France, mm-hmm. which is that you have a sort of leaderless group, successful, I suppose, in a particular context you know what's the future for the sardines beyond this mobilization against salvini i mean on the one hand they were successful on the other hand they were a failure i mean salvini did spectacularly well in a region where he should simply have done incredibly badly so the evisceration of the pide vote in its sort of heartlands continues apace and the transformation of the Lega into a national party continues apace. That was going to be my question because there's all this volatility around Italian politics and we talk about it every few months and it's you know the pace of change is completely remarkable and yet there seems to be this kind of steady drip drip which is Salvini just gets closer and closer to power I mean he's been in power but to power on his own so he did remarkably well and yet there was some expectation that he would actually win in Emilia Romana, there's still a thought that there's a north-south divide. I mean, there is obviously a north-south divide in Italian politics. The goal is to make the League a national party. Its origins is very much as a northern party, and it still struggles in the south. Is he inching closer to power on his own? He is, yes. He is. And I think, so what he did in the summer when he decided to drop out of government was, I think... Probably on the spot, it was a misguided calculation, but I think it will pay off in the long run. And especially what what we have seen in the last regional elections so in Emilia-Romagna, which is in the centre-north, and in Calabria, which is in the deep south, is that he managed to create a very strong right coalition. So he's the major partner in the coalition, but then he has Berlusconi, which is the really interesting development in Italian politics. There is this party called Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, led by this woman, Meloni, who's gaining more and more. So the, really the, the novelty here is that she in 2018 got maybe 4 or 5% and now she's above 10% of the vote. And she gets votes in the South. She's a credible politician on the far right, I would say, in the South. So the two of them together, plus Berlusconi, who gets the four, 5 6% of the votes, they really get over 40%. So I think 
he is definitely the fact that in Emilia Romagna he did not win doesn't signal anything. And if anything, the idea that he could win was a miscalculation on his part because he blew it off of proportion, saying, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, when it was clear from the beginning that he would not win in Emilia-Romagna because Emilia-Romagna is the one region in Italy that votes on the left. I think it was it was quite a close-run thing, but if you look at the breakdown of the vote for that particular regional election, I mean, the Lega just swept up anywhere outside of the kind of the centre of the cities which have this middle-class, urban, educated vote. When you start to break it up in terms of the urban, rural, the Lega do extremely well. Uh, now, that sort of model replicated across different parts of Italy, you start to get that urban-rural division. If the Lega are able to win some cities but also really start to sweep up in outside of cities, then the whole sort of centre versus periphery, city versus countryside and towns. I mean, that dynamic, I think the Lega are very strong. Yes, so in, in Emilia-Romagna, the, the League got all the votes of the poorest areas. So the region is a very is a wealthy region, is a well-managed region, but all the poorest parts of the region went to the League. So that's telling. I'm not sure, though, that it maps on the votes for the League map onto a urban-rural divide in the sense that they, they get just all the votes also in the north, in the big cities. So where I'm from, Verona, has been traditional. It's a very wealthy city. It's an educated city. It's a big city for Italian standards, and it has voted League for years so I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that... No, but if they can combine the two, so on the one oh, hand, yes. they can be relatively strong in some urban conurbations, which they've been historically very strong in. And if they start to sweep up in vast swathes of the Italian countryside, you're getting a, you know, a successful national party, there's no doubt. So I said close to power on his own, and of course it's not on his own because any route to power in Italian politics does involve some form of coalition, Berlusconi and others, yet it would be a like-minded coalition in some sense and I'm going to try and make a connection between Italy and Ireland here because one thing that we are seeing in different political systems Germany comes into this too the UK comes into this too is the problem of coalition government with parties or movements that are not well suited to each other and one tends to be destroyed by it I mean five star were destroyed Yes. by being in coalition, first with the League and then with the payday. The Liberal Democrats were destroyed by being in coalition. I mean, not destroyed, destroyed, because you can't kill parties, but close to destroyed. Something's going on in Germany now, very dramatic, the question about whether it's possible to go into government with the AFD. There's a huge question in Ireland for the two main parties about the risks and the opportunities of going into government with Sinn Féin. And there is a huge question for Sinn Féin about the risks and the opportunities of going into government. And this, again, is one difference between Sinn Féin and Corbynism, as such as that Corbynism always had at its goal majority government. And then there would have been a question, had it had to form a coalition, what it would have done. Sinn Féin's never going to be a majority government in Ireland. What do you think is the risk here? Who, who has the most to lose if we do get a Sinn Féin plus coalition? We may not, but if we do... Mm, really interesting question. Sinn Féin don't want to be a junior partner. That's That much is very clear. And it should be said no one wants to be a junior partner because they're the ones that get destroyed. True, very true, very true. And Mary Lou MacDonald would like to be Taoiseach. She really would. But I suppose many of us would like to be many things. Uh, would you but, like to be Taoiseach? <laughs> actually, no, I would not like that job, David. I think I'll stay where I am. Thanks very much. So... Yeah, there's a question for her. And of course, we discussed earlier on, are there enough leftist parties who they could ally with to create a government? And the answer is probably no. The risks really are for the other two. Fine Gael is, is very clear on not 
taking up a coalition with Sinn Féin and it's probably made a very strategic choice there. It knows who it's, well, it knows partly who normally votes for it and they don't want to compromise that. The links between Fianna Fáil and uh, Sinn Féin are maybe slightly more interesting. Both of them for various various reasons and at different stages are the Republican parties. So in some ways they have slightly more of a connection to each other, ideologically speaking and historically speaking. But for Fianna Fáil, this is also a risk. It doesn't want its own historic legacy and the reason why people voted for it or at least remember these sort of historical reasons to transfer to Sinn Féin. So I think for Fianna Fáil, it's more of a tricky question for it than perhaps for Fine Gael. I, I think... Are we seeing the end of the sort of the era of the grand coalition? I, I think possibly. I mean, possibly it's run its course just because it doesn't seem to work. What, in Ireland or everywhere? Well, no. So as a general phenomenon, I mean, what are the reasons why you have this drift towards the grand coalition, which is to say disparate parties that come together and form a, a government, even though they may be pretty different? One reason is the decline of vote share, which means that no party can really govern on their own, and so they're forced into coalition, even in systems that are not usually organised around coalitions. Another one is the decline of differences between them, so actually they're not as different as we might think. And the third reason is to create this kind of cordon sanitaire against either far-right parties or populist parties or whatever's seen as beyond the pale. All those three things, I mean, maybe the declining vote share is not changing dramatically, It may be that the ideological differences are becoming more prominent and accentuated by the experience of grand coalitions. And it may be that there's just a greater willingness now to do deals with parties that might otherwise have been beyond the pale. Neve, last question. Is it possible, notwithstanding what Chris has just said, that there could be what's called a government of national unity sometimes? Because probably what will happen is there'll have to be another election before that long. There is a year of Brexit negotiations coming up. That, you know, the stakes are still high. Is it possible that all three main parties would cobble something together for a year and then you have elections in 2021? Um, or is that mm, a step too far? I think for Fine Gael, no. They've made, it, they've made it very clear. So they wouldn't join a kind of stopgap no. arrangement? No, they wouldn't. No, no, they wouldn't. Sinn Féin, of course, realises it needs to speak to other parties and is happy to do so. And it's also feeling quite victorious because of Saturday. We're going to see a coalition in Ireland of some sort. So it's not the end of coalitions in Ireland. That's that's the important point. And that's likely to continue. If there is another election, you might you might see a majority victory for Sinn Féin if they field more candidates. Um, Genuinely, that's a possibility. Yeah, it? I mean... Because that would be an amazing shift be, in a matter of a few years. Yeah, I mean, they ran far fewer candidates than than they anticipated, around half the number of candidates that, that the other parties actually ran. 42 candidates out of a possible 159 seats. Of course, 80 is the big number. That's the crucial number for a majority. So, I mean, that's that's roughly half the number, OK, just slightly over. So if it had an opportunity again to do the same, the question is, could it reach that crucial number of 80, given that most of the second and third preference votes from the voters who voted for Sinn Féin as first preferences also went to leftist parties. So you're talking that they they will get those votes in addition to perhaps some more should they field more candidates. So it's not unlikely, that's for sure. Because it would buck my law of current democratic politics, which is that there aren't enough young people, these movements that skew young. That number that you said for the over 65s, that, to me, is the barrier, unless Sinn Féin can make inroads there too, which is possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. But I think there is a ceiling, actually, at this moment to this politics. 
it's quite a high ceiling. Corbyn got 40% of the vote in 2017. And if Sinn Féin get 40% of the vote, they're home and dry. But to go back to where you started, I think that number for older voters matters because we are all living in societies where an ageing population is the basic demographic fact. Young people are suffering, but old people are in the majority. Absolutely. And maybe maybe healthcare is partly the way that Sinn Féin hopes to get there. And that was a, a crucial policy that it had. And if we see some significant reforms that it does, perhaps it can reach out to these voters who are the generation who, who lived through the Troubles and they remember they remember it. Of course, you know, the Troubles was mainly in Northern Ireland with isolated incidents in, in the Republic. But they remember it and they remember the characterisation of Sinn Féin then. They don't really remember the sort of newly re- reinvigorated Sinn Féin that, that progressively changed from the 80s right through to the 90s and certainly from the time of the peace process where Sinn Féin itself became much more centre ground in Northern Ireland to reach out to a wider spectrum of voters. That's not the Sinn Féin older voters in the Republic remember and that's the Sinn Féin that probably wants to get its message out today to try to encourage those older voters that it is a credible party. So it could be the case that a coalition for Sinn Féin is good because it signals what it's been able to signal in Northern Ireland which is that it is a party of government. Yeah, absolutely. As long as it has some control over the areas it wants to have control over. So yes, indeed. Neve's new book is Ireland and the Great War, A Social and Political History, and it will take you deep into the background of what we've been talking about, including what happened to Sinn Féin when they won the election in 1918. Next week, we're going to be talking about France and talking in much more detail about what we mentioned today, the meaning of the Gilets Jaunes. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Because it would buck my current law of democratic politics, which is that there aren't enough people. Not enough people, I'll say that again. It's a good law. A good law. There aren't enough people. There just aren't enough people. people We need more people. Yeah, yeah. if it did happen, it would buck what sort of become. Well, uh, first of all, just I want to say thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast, David. It is a real pleasure to be on something I listen to regularly. So um, thank no you. No one ever that. says that. Oh, oh. well, <laughs> it's about time. It's about time. You're talking about Ireland, so we're going to be very nice today. Um, ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.